The year was 1945. Rabbi Silver was trying to find many of the Jewish children who had either been hidden or relocated by Hitler. Some had been put in monasteries, some had been put in camps. He found out that there was a monastery in southern France that supposedly held many of these children that he wanted to help return to their families who'd been missing them for, for years at this point. As he met with the priest, and many of the children gathered there, and he said, do you know if any of these were taken from their Jewish parents before they were adopted out? And the priest didn't know. He said, they all have German names. They speak German at this point. I just don't know. I think they all uh, came from Christian German Lutheran families. But it's very possible. So Rabbi Silver wanted to figure out the identity of the children who were, who were Jewish, who had been taken from their homes to reunite them with their families. He knew that Jewish parents would recite and sing over their kids as babies the Shema. It comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. Shema, which is the Hebrew word for hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So he gathered the children together and he began to sing a lullaby. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Akkad. And as he began to sing, the children, several of them perked up. Something in their distant memory reminded them of a song, a lullaby that their mothers and their grandmothers had sung to them. And through this lullaby and through this song, they reconnected to a memory. They reconnected to their identity. And they reconnected to the action of him being able to rejoin them with their families through the Shema. One word tied them back to their identity. Today I want to make up three words as we go through the book of Mark. Three words that I hope will connect us to a memory, to an identity, and to put into action what God has called us to do. Here the three words are. The first word we're going to look at is hereby. To hereby. The second word is lordson. And the third word is skirmite. Each one of these words is going to help us know something. We're going to know what God sees as most important who God sees as most important, and how God sees as most important. Because if you knew what God thought was most important, you'd, you'd be able to prioritize your life around the things that he finds most important. I mean, wouldn't it be tragic if you spent your whole life making apple pies? I mean, you pick the apples, you, you scrape the apples, you cook the apples, you prepare the apples, you spent your whole life making apple pies, and you present them to God, and found out he doesn't like apples. Wouldn't that be tragic? What if you knew God's priorities? What was most important? Who is most important? Uh, how we go about life is most important. You could align your life to what God sees as most important. The first word is hereby. Jesus is being confronted by another group. If you remember last week, Jesus confronted the Herodians, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. And now we pick up with another group that's confronting him in this chapter, and that's the scribes. And the scribes have a question for him. One of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, meaning Jesus and these other groups, he perceived that he, Jesus, had answered them well. So he asked him a question. Which is the first commandment of all? When you think about all the things the Bible says, if you were to reduce it down to the primary one, the weightiest one, the, the one that everything else hangs on, what would you say? And Jesus answered him and said, the first of all the commandments, 
comes out of Deuteronomy 6. It's the Shema. Hear, Shema, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. It's not a check your brain at the door. It's engage God with your mind and all of your strength. And that's the first commandment. But the second one's just as important. He quotes from Leviticus of all places and says, love your neighbor as yourself. And here he says what God thinks is most important is that we love God, that we love our neighbor, and by implication, we love ourselves. Now, the reason I say here, Bay, is because the word Shema is what we translate into the word here. But in Hebrew, Shema means so much more than here. As Americans, we think the word here means the audio waves made it into my eardrum and I registered them. But Shema meant I heard and put into practice. I would hear and obey. I would hear bay. To Shema was to hear bay. It was to listen, to be so impacted by a, a truth or a promise or reality, I couldn't not but put into action because I heard it. And if I wasn't acting on it, I hadn't really heard it. I hadn't really let it sink into my life. I hadn't really dealt with it. And God says here, if you understand who God is, He is one. And here we see the Trinity. Because God is one in His three persons, in His oneness, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit love each other. They submit to each other. They celebrate one another. They put each other's interests ahead of their own. The Lord is one, but in their oneness, He loves, He communicates. And when you see how other-centered God is, how much He loves you, how much He loves me, how much He's humble, how much He defers to one another, you see, I want to do unto others what this God has done unto me. I've got to love my neighbor. And then you think, wait a second. Who's my neighbor? I don't mind loving my, my spouse or my kids or my clients and some of my colleagues. But boy, I don't like that guy. I don't like that neighbor. I don't like my enemy. I don't like how he thinks about that. I don't, think the, I don't like the stand he takes on that particular issue. I don't want to love that guy. He's my enemy. She's my enemy. She's a gossip. She says mean things. And God says, I want you to love your enemy the way I loved you when you were my enemy. I sought after you. I pursued you. I gave you grace. Do unto others, hear be, shema, hear what I've done for you and obey it by doing it unto others. When we hear his grace, we hear bay the grace and extend it to others. Lois wrote a book called... Uh, sitting at the feet of Rabbi Jesus and walking in the dust of Rabbi Jesus. And she shares a story about hanging out with a friend one day and the kids were running back and forth. They had elementary kids and they were squirting each other with squirt guns. And they were just so chasing each other around the house. And it was starting to get dark. And so Lois's friend said, all right, guys, all right, all right, let's, let's, let's be done. Let's be done squirting. Let's head into the house before it gets too late. And they watched as the kids began to squirt more and they began to run faster and they began to almost totally ignore her. To which her Jewish friend said, I guess my kids have a hearing problem. Because in her mind, when you do not obey, you did not hear. The two words are connected. That's why I say it's the hear bay. Now, we come by this honestly, right? A lot of us don't listen well. The other day, a couple weekends ago, we had a family movie night, which we do once a week. And so I turned to my son. I said, hey, it's Friday night. I just want to remind you, 7.15, we're going to grab a movie, so we need to leave about 7 o'clock. I got I, 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 No, no, you told me. You sure? Yeah. About 6.45, all right, we're leaving my family. I, I know, I know, I know, I know. 
All right. It's about seven o'clock. All right, we're getting in the car. I see you're not dressed. Why do I need to be dressed? I'm babysitting. No, you're not babysitting. I said, you're coming with us because it's mom's birthday. We have a babysitter. Oh, why didn't you tell me? Got a hearing problem. And before I get judgmental, then, you know, five minutes later, my wife will be like, I told you this yesterday. Oh, why was I not listening? Now, in Christendom, there's two views about the law. One is that, hey, we're all under grace now. The law doesn't matter. That seems a little naive that things like do not kill one another doesn't matter, that do not gossip doesn't matter, that do not envy doesn't matter. So that view seems to be inadequate. The other view is that keeping the law will make you righteous. Well, that certainly falls short because where the law abounds, sin abounds even more. Shema is the middle ground that we hear God's grace, but instead of letting it just sit there or not pushes to action if we really hear grace we will act and if we're not acting we need to go back and hear grace it's not self-righteous law abiding but it's also not throwing the law out it's hearing what god has done and saying i want to please the one that made me pleasing i want to obey the one and be other centered my living because the other centered one rescued me all of that is built into this idea of shema well the scribe likes this the scribe said to him well said teacher You've spoken the truth. There is one God, and there's no other but He. And to love Him with all of your heart and all of your understanding and all of your soul and all of your strength and to love one's neighbor as yourself is more, is weightier, is the main thing. It's better than all of the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. In other words, the burnt sacrifices, prayer, Giving all these things that we do, spiritual disciplines, simplicity, fasting, all those things and being in the temple, offering your ram, celebrating Passover, all that pointed to the goal being to love the Lord your God for who he was and what he had done. And Jesus saw that he answered wisely and he said to the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, he's still not in the kingdom of God, right? But he's not far. You're starting to get it. It's not about all the religious rituals. It's about loving God. And wanting to obey him because you love him. And after that, no one questioned him. By the time he put the Herodians to task and the Pharisees to task. I mean, these were the expert lawyers and religious leaders and philosophers of his day. He goes, wow. It's more than burnt offerings and sacrifices. We dropped my daughter off at college uh, back in August. When we did, we ran a boat. We wanted to go uh, boating together. So while we were boating, my son was getting up on a wakeboard, and he was just having more trouble, a little choppier than normal. He was really getting frustrated himself, really getting mad at himself. He'd get back in the boat, just start grumbling and complaining, getting mad. And, and uh, this happened several times. So pretty soon, I, I decided to pull out the dad lecture. You know, do you really making things tense around here? You know, what you, well, it just, it, we didn't have, you know, we we're having this conversation back and forth. And so after a couple of days, I'm, I'm trying to stop the, the frustration and start spilling over into everybody. And so I'm having the speech for about the fifth time, and my wife turns to me, she's like, I think your speeches are actually making it more tense than his actions. <laughs> that could be, that could be. Then I started thinking, what does it mean to hear Bay? What does God do when I'm down? Well, you know what, he, he gives me unconditional love. We find out later my son had some real, um, was really feeling sick, we actually since got diagnosed but he was actually sick, and because he was sick, he wasn't able to perform as well. He didn't have a good attitude, and suddenly I had a little more compassion. And I thought, what do I do? He, he's beating himself up, 
And here I am piling on but beating him up more. What if instead, when I see these indications come out of him, I'll encourage him, I'll love him, I'll, I'll be more patient with him? What would it look like for me to hear Bay, to do unto him as God does unto me when I'm crabby, when I'm sick, when I'm not acting properly? It changed the dynamic for the rest of the trip when I began to practice some here being. The second word that we see is lordsome. It's very fascinating. Jesus answered then, and he said while he taught in the temple, I got a question for you scribes. I got a question for you guys. You guys are experts in the law, right? Yes. Let's, let's turn to a passage, and they would often debate or dialogue a particular passage. And he said, how is it, scribes, that the scribes say from the Bible that the Messiah... The Christ, the anointed one, will be the son of David. And they said, oh, that's exactly right. The scriptures clearly show that the Messiah will trace his human lineage to King David. We know that. You got it. She says, well, I got a question then. When David wrote that, he was writing it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Which again shows Jesus' view of the Bible. It wasn't just David writing it. God wrote through David. This was God's word he was reading. He said, but the Lord is what he says in the book is the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord as if this person, this Messiah is his God. How can he also be his son? How can he be the Lord's son? He's both fully Lord and he's fully son. I don't know. Now, the common people heard him gladly. Yeah. Whatever this Messiah is, he has to be both the Lord, because that's what the Bible says, and Son. And this is why the deity of Christ, the, the incarnation, didn't come along hundreds of years later. It actually came in hundreds of years before. Even in the Old Testament, it prophesied the Lord's Son. That God himself would come down through the womb of a woman. He would become a child. He would give up the luxury of heaven to come and become one of us. To sympathize with us. To identify with us. And to ultimately die for one of us as the Son of God. But before we dive into the implications of the Lord's Son... Let's look again at Jesus' view of Scripture. Remember last week he was dialoguing with the Pharisees, or the Sadducees, and he said that even the tenses of verbs were inspired by God. Not, I was the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Bible is so inspired that even down to the verb tense, God had chosen it. Here we see Jesus' view of inspiration. How did we get the Bible? David, or the human authors of the Bible said through the Holy Spirit, God worked in conjunction with their writing to make sure what they wrote down was God's revelation error-free. Let's talk about that for a moment, because I, how did we get the Bible? And if we believe human beings are sinful, how can we believe that what they wrote was error-free? It's a good question. So we start with the idea of revelation as God wanted to reveal himself to us. So God has the, the impotence the, or the the... the the motivation or the initiation to say, I need to make sure I get my revelation to my people. That's revelation. So he reveals it through general revelation, through the earth and the creation around us, and specific revelation, which is through the Bible. So God wants to make sure it gets to us in a way that we can access it, error-free. So in Second uh, Timothy 3.16, it says that all Scripture is God-breathed. So let me get some God-breath over here. So God-breathed. 
so it's in the process of writing down the scripture that God's very breath was breathing out this process, moving along people like David. Now, in First Timothy, First Peter one twenty one, it says that holy men of God, that means people set apart for God's purposes, were moved by the Holy Spirit. The phrase literally means superintended or carried along. Which means that while they were writing the scripture, God carried along these particular books with his revelation to make sure these particular books were error free. Not everything David wrote was error free. Not everything Peter wrote was error free. Not everything Paul wrote was error free. But these books that contain his revelation for all people at all times, God's breath carried them along or as theologians call it, superintended. What would that look like? Well, again, the Bible in those days didn't look like this. It looked more like this. It was a scroll. You would unroll the scroll. You'd be writing out the scroll. Now, the Book of Mormon, as well as the Quran, their view of inspiration is, called, is a, more like a typewriter. God said, write down, the man said this. The man said this. They were typewriters. That's not biblical view of inspiration. It is that God carried along their writing style. You see their personality as they write. You see their talents as they write. There's uniqueness in the different books. But God carried them along by his Holy Spirit as they wrote in such a way that it would be air-free. So here's what biblical inspiration would look like if you could see it. In the process of them writing it out, at the same time, God's breath was carrying them along like it did here. And then what was written was a combination of their writing style, their personality, and God carrying it along for the writing of the canon or the Bible so that we have it air-free. And that's what Jesus is talking about when he says, David the human author was said by the Holy Spirit who superintended to carry him along, the Messiah will be the Lord's Son. Now, why is it so important that we understand this? Well, first of all, I'd say there's a lot of archaeological evidence why the Bible's true, a lot of manuscript evidence why the Bible's true, but we ought to wrestle with this, especially in our culture today. I would say even if you don't want to dig into the details on this process, the copying process for the Bible, the evidence for the Bible, it's clear from this passage in last week, Jesus' view of the Bible. His view is that down to the very tense, it was written by God and is trustworthy. Now, we live in a culture today that's changing. In fact, 19% of people surveyed by Barna were Bible-engaged, meaning they were reading their Bible at least four times a week. And of those who were Bible-engaged, they believed that it was not just a book, it was the Word of God given to us by God. There's a direct Shema correlation between believing it's God's Word and saying, I've got to find out what God wants me to know this week, several times this week. What is the God who gave this to me would want me to know? Increasingly, Barna found that though 81% of Americans think that we're in moral decline, it used to be they said, you know, we really need to get back to what God says, God's Word used to be in 2013, 32% said our moral decline is a lack of understanding God's revelation. That continues to go down to 26. Actually, amongst millennials today, it drops, um, only 30% believe that the Bible has, has or should have any influence on Americans or on people. 
Instead, it's, you know, Hollywood's fault. If we could just fix Hollywood, then all of a sudden we'd, we'd be fine. So there's an increasing view in our postmodern world that the Bible's not true. Maybe it's got some good stories in there, but don't take it too seriously. But here's where I go with. Jesus rose from the dead. I'd like to go with his view of Scripture. Now, there's evidence well as well, but I would say I'm going to go with the view of the guy who rose himself from the dead. That's the approach I want to take, and that's the approach I'd encourage you to take as well, and to wrestle with that. There's evidence, and we need to be able to give a reasonable um, explanation as to how we got the Bible and how we know it's true. Now, let's talk about the Lord's Son for a moment. Why does Jesus, why did the Messiah need to be fully God and fully man? Three reasons. One, he had to be a substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement means that he had to come down and substitute or take our place. He had to die the death we should have died, and he lived the life we should have lived. We weren't living a perfect life, and therefore we deserve death for our imperfections, for our immorality, for the way in which we put ourselves in the place of God. God substituted for us. He wasn't a good example for us to follow. I mean, he was that, but that's, that's exemplary atonement. He substituted for us. He took our place. In order to take our place, he had to be both God and man. He couldn't have been Jesus the frog or Jesus the goat or Jesus the sheep. We've had sheep sacrifices. We've had goat sacrifices. God himself had to come, not need his own punishment. He had to be perfect. That's why he had to be God. And he had to take our place as our substitute, so he had to be fully man. The second reason he needed to be the Lord's son is he needed to represent both sides. He needed to represent God's justice and our need. Imagine being in a court case and you hire a lawyer who's going to represent a, uh, a divorce, for example. And you hire somebody, you think you can trust them, and as you show up to the divorce proceedings, you find out that your lawyer is best friends and a colleague with your ex. You're suddenly panicked as you go into the court proceedings. This person can't represent me and her because he's friends with her. He can't represent my side. In the same way, in order for Jesus to represent us, he had to be fully God, in order to represent God's justice, he had to be fully man and fully God. So that's what's going in, into this passage. And lastly, we see in the incarnation the idea that God gave generously to us because he left the, the penthouse of heaven to come to the outhouse of earth to say, I want to give generously of myself and sacrifice myself for other people. And I want you to, Shema, go and do the same. Sacrifice for others, love others, give of yourself to others, just as I did when I came to earth. Which brings us to our third word, the skirmites. What does it mean to give of yourself to other people? Well, the scribes show up again. And Jesus said to them, guys, I need you to be aware of the skirmites. They're a particular religious termite that can invade your soul. Skirmites, beware of the scribes. They desire to go around in long robes. But it's all about external appearance. Every action they do, every decision they make, isn't coming from a place of genuine, authentic inner desire. It's all about putting on a show for position, for authority, for influence. Nothing wrong with authority, position, and influence, unless that's your only motivation. It's all pretense, he's going to say. They desire to go away in the wrong, long robes. Oh, they love the greetings and their titles in the marketplaces. Oh, they always sit in the best seats in the synagogues. Oh, in the best places at feasts. And though they look good on the outside, I'm telling you, I see beneath the service, and they are like whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. The outside of the cup looks so pure, but the inside is full of death, he will say in Matthew. 
He goes on to say, what causes this? Well, skirmites. These are termites, religious termites that create this inner structure. It eats away at the inner structure of your soul, but it keeps the outside appearance looking good. He says, when I see the scribes, I see those who devour widows' houses and make a pretense. They're pretending to make long prayers. But they're praying so they will be heard. Oh, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like the tax collectors. What a great prayer. They would purposely pray in the street corners with big, long, robust prayers because they like the attention of hearing people whisper, wow, that guy can pray. But it was all pretense because God says, they don't pray to me secretly. They're not even talking to me when they pray. They're talking to other people trying to get attention through their prayers. This is a kind of religious termite that's all about looking good and pretending to look good and getting the, the rewards from people's applause. But it's all pretense, and they will receive a greater condemnation. In fact, it's interesting. He says they devour women, widows' houses. The scribes came up with this way that they could pretend to be generous but not really be generous. And here's how they did it. They would give all their money to the synagogue or to their temple. So they write off everything I own. It all belongs to the temple. And they set it up in like a trust fund that they controlled. So they could spend out of the trust fund whenever they wanted. But they could also say they didn't have any money. It was just brilliant because a widow could come to them and say, oh, my goodness, uh, I don't have any money. I'm falling apart. I need. Could you help me financially? And the scribe would say, oh, I wish I could. I don't own anything. I gave it all to the synagogue. Oh, well, that's a good thing. That's okay. Well, it's... So they could simultaneously spend everything that they had given to the synagogue on themselves because they controlled the trust fund, while they could say to anyone who wanted money from them, I don't have any money. And Jesus said, that is a pretense. That is not Shema. You pretend to be obeying me. I gave it all to the Lord. But you're not helping those in need. You're not loving your neighbor as yourself. He said, this is a religious termite that will eat away the infrastructure of your soul and of your life because it's all about externals, not about internals. So how do you fix skirmites? Because I have them. I mean, things like reputation are important, but how do you not make it your ultimate thing? And how do you not let yourself become duplicitous, which is the way you live externally and publicly is different from how you live privately? Jesus says the only solution for skirmites, religious pretense, is the widow's might. The ego loves attention. So the only way to deal with the ego issues related to position and power that Jesus speaks about is secret praying, secret giving, secret fasting. Because everything in your ego wants the attention. But secret prayer says, God, I'm talking to you when nobody else is around. It's just me and you. God says, I listen to that secret praying. Because your motivation is because you want to know me. Secret fasting doesn't go around and say, oh my goodness, I haven't eaten in so long. I'm really getting close to the Lord. You've received your reward in full, Jesus will say. But instead, when you fast, put on oil so you look good. Don't let people know you're fasting. And let this be a decision between you and God, that God, you know I'm trying to get close to you during this season. It's not about other people seeing me get close to you. It's about me, me wanting to be close to you. 
It's not about giving where you, where you purposely give in big showy ways that other people see and you have your reward in full. But no, when you give, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, but give in such a way that your father, who sees what you're doing is done in secret, will reward you greatly in heaven. The secret to skirmites is the widow's might. Secret spiritual disciplines, secret praying, and secret giving. That's why Jesus launches from this passage directly into, come to the treasury, my disciples. See how many of the people are putting money in the treasury? And they look very generous. Many who were rich put in much. And they were. But then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which Marx translates into the Greek-Roman currency and says it's a quadrant. So he called his disciples and said to him, And said to them, assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow, quietly, without making a scene, has put in more. More than those who have given to the treasury. More than all of those who have given to the treasury. What's the principle? Here it is. For they put in out of their abundance, but she gave out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. He says, and that caught my attention and that caught God's attention. Secret giving out of her poverty, not her abundance. Now, I think it would be unwise for us to give all our money because then we need somebody to support us. So what is the principle here that we could apply? I think it's this. Are we giving out of our abundance or out of our livelihood or our poverty? I had a doctor friend. He was wrestling with this. He goes, I'm never going to give the way the widow did. But what does it look like to give the principle Jesus is calling me to? And he said, for me, here's what I wrestled with, Chad. He said, I decided that if my giving doesn't affect my living, I'm giving out of abundance. Now, if my giving doesn't change the choices I could make, I probably was giving out of abundance. I should give in such a way that I have to make different choices because of my choice to give generously. For example, in my line of work, most of my colleagues are upgrading their car at least every year, if not every 18 months. I've decided that I want to take a larger portion of my money and give it away toward God's priorities, the church, the widow, the orphan, mission organizations he was involved in. He said, so I purposely only upgrade my car every three years. You might think that's silly. That may not be a big deal for other people, but for me... I'm not going to upgrade my car as often because I want to make sure that my giving gives me less choices. It affects my lifestyle. And I'm not saying that my friends always notice, but I am always driving a car just a little bit underneath what my colleagues are driving because I want to be more generous. I want my lifestyle to be affected by my giving. I thought, now that's a great principle. As all of us look at our giving, does our giving, financial giving, affect our choices? Did I have to make different choices because of my commitment to give? And did I do it quietly? And did I do it purposefully? And did I do it because I want God to see it? I read an article last week about a couple. (laughs) She's a social worker who makes like uh, $40,000 a year. And her husband is a tech engineer, software developer, who makes $250,000 a year. They got married about seven years ago, and they made a decision before they got married that they were going to give away 100% of his income and live on half of hers. They go, why don't you do it the other way? That might feel... (laughs) And for the last seven years, 
They've been living off of 6% of their income. Oh, my goodness. They showed the budget in this article. How they're like, oh. Now, what would motivate somebody to do that? And, again, that's not prescriptive for any of us. But I'm just saying it's amazing to say, boy, when you're committed to something, that person's either crazy or they know something we don't. And Jesus says, when your giving affects your living, you're not a fool. You're expecting a greater reward. There's a greater reward than the applause of men. There's a greater reward than just upgrading your life now. The greater reward is that there is a God who is watching what you're doing and saying, not only does this create a genuine expression of your your relationship with God, not only does this change your heart in a way that nothing else will, but you've got a reward coming that is so amazing because God is... Not only transforming you into somebody now, but you have a 30, 60, 100-fold reward when a manager comes back and sees how you used and stewarded your resources. Three words we looked at today. Hear, obey. I hear and put into action and obey. What would it look like for you today to hear and put into action God's grace, God's generosity, God's mercy? God's compassion, God's unconditional love. What does it mean that he's the Lord's son, that he gave up everything for you, that he makes you a saint, that he makes you acceptable for God? Maybe it's time to put off the self-hate. Maybe it's time to stop beating yourself up because he was beat up enough for you and to see what he did for you and who he's made you into. And maybe you need to confess some skirmites, some duplicitous lifestyle that you're living publicly differently than you are privately. And you want to begin to realign those things, even if it's not pretty, even if it's a little messy. To say, God, I want these to be consistent. Change. Bring a termite inspection into my heart. And I want to start practicing secret giving. Secret growth practices like fasting. Secret praying. Because I want to know you. In a more powerful way. Here, Bay, it's what God sees. The Lord's Son, it's who God sees. And the skirmite, the widow's might, is how God sees. And when we do that, we can come to the end of our life and we can present God an apple pie and we find out if that apple pie consists of his ingredients, he sits and says, Dine with me. In Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for your call. Thank you for your desire for us to be the kind of people who graciously love others the way you've loved us. We call ourselves to the Shema. And we ask you to allow that love, your spirit's love, your spirit's fruit, to flow into our families, our communities, and anyone who interacts with us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you came prepared to give, there's some offering boxes on the way out. If you're new with the church, uh, we'd love to put a name with the face. The third door on your left is the hearth room. Thanks for being here today.